Hi everyone, this is Eugene, and before turning it over to Paul for his conversation with Megan, I just wanted to say that their conversation really made me reflect on just how much has happened in the past only two or three years, with the protests of the Muslim ban at the airports to DACA being in danger and everything in between. Um, it made me think a lot about a conversation recently that I listened to from Min Jin Lee, the author of Pachinko, who talked about how so many of us want to write the stories of our grandmothers because we think that they've experienced something greater than we have. But actually, the fact of the matter is that when they were growing up, they didn't really feel like what was happening around them was a historical event, right? They just lived through it just as we are living through these times. So similarly, at the end of the interview, when Megan mentions that she got into immigration advocacy after 9-11, it made me realize that though I'd had an interest in stories for a long time, I reached out to Paul about this project during the heat of the Mexico border crisis. And I've also heard similar things from people while doing this project about them quitting jobs to get involved um, in just the past couple of years. So I'm really grateful for Megan, uh, who can bring this through a quick rundown of the many things that have happened under this presidency in terms of immigration policy. And the only thing that I'll say before turning it over to Paul is please Google the Reuniting Families Act HR 3799 after this interview. You should be able to find a link on congress.gov and there you can see if your representative is a sponsor of the bill by going to a tab that says co-sponsor and if not please send them an email asking them to support so without further ado here's paul with megan essaheb advocacy at Asian Americans Advancing Justice, AJC. Megan, thank you so much for, uh, for joining us today. Thanks for having me. You know, I have been really looking forward to this conversation and learning from you because as I was mentioning before, I uh, just happened to tune into this uh, webinar on the recent executive order by the president and on, on the Reuniting Families Act, and I happened to see you on there. So I, I knew that more people would want to learn from you as well. So thank you so much again. And could you just start by giving a brief overview of the work that you and your organization does? Sure, sure. So I work at Asian Americans Advancing Justice, AAJC in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to advance the civil and human rights for Asian Americans and to build and promote a fair and equitable society for all. So my work is mainly around immigration policy and advocacy. And a lot of our work is centered around the idea that family is the cornerstone of American communities. So I think, especially in this moment, people have a deep awareness that caring for family members is a top priority. And family, of course, extends beyond children, parents, to our elders, grandparents, siblings, aunts and uncles, and beyond for many to friends and neighbors. So since 1965, our immigration system has been centered on the idea that allowing Americans to reunify with their families is both good for those particular families, but it's also a great immigration structure because families support new immigrants by providing housing, helping them find jobs, learn English, integrate, become citizens. And many times they pool their capital to buy homes, cars, and start small businesses. 
For Asian Americans who are 92% immigrant or the children of immigrants, family reunification visas are particularly important. Unfortunately, this administration has been focused on attacking family-based immigration and lowering immigration to the U.S. and implementing inhumane policies of attrition. So from the Muslim ban and the refugee bans to the more recent African ban and last week's immigration ban to the public charge rule, stripping people of DACA and temporary protected status, separation of children from their parents at the southern border, the wall construction on the southern border, and I could go on and on. Together, these policies are really the implementation of a very intentional plan to change the future demographics of this country by lowering new immigration and deporting people en masse. So we are experiencing a resurgence of white nationalism and heightened racism in, in the U.S. focused around these policies. In response, Asian Americans Advancing Justice co-convened the Value Our Families campaign, which is a coalition of over 30 diverse local and national organizations that exist to protect, preserve, and strengthen the family immigration system and to promote an immigration system that's informed by love, empathy, and justice. So a lot of my work has been through that campaign to fight back against these policies. But I think we also do some work, particularly supportive work around detention and deportations. For example, thousands of Southeast Asian families are being separated or under threat of separation by a harsh and humane enforcement system. Yeah, wow. That's, as I mentioned before, I'm just deeply inspired and, and grateful on, on a personal level for all the work that you do. I almost uh, can't keep track of, as you said, uh, the different News stories that are happening, uh, you know, at the border and immigration restrictions, travel restrictions, and you hear these numbers, right, like thousands and 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 millions, but it's hard for me to really grasp the the magnitude of the situation. And and, and the mission of this podcast is to connect stories, personal human stories of family separation. Would you be willing to share a story that you've encountered in your work of of a family or an individual that has been has been personally affected? Yeah, sure. I think one story that stands out for me was when I was on a Value Our Families press call a couple years ago about the Muslim ban and the refugee ban and the attacks on family-based immigration. And there was a, a refugee woman from Ohio, and she was originally from West Africa. She spoke very powerfully about her personal trauma, being a victim of torture in her home country, and then finally being able to come to the U.S., getting work. And her children were supposed to finally be able to join her in the United States when the refugee program was effectively shut down by this administration. So, you know, these are minor children that this woman was separated from. It's particularly impactful, but there's all, all different kinds of stories are Los Angeles affiliate was helping a family where a U.S. citizen woman was in the hospital and she needed an organ transplant. And her sister in South Korea was a match, but her sister couldn't get a visa to come to the United States. Just this January, when the president put out the expansion of the Muslim ban, what we're calling the African ban, because he added, added a lot of African countries and Myanmar and Burma. The day it was going into effect, I happened to have an Eritrean taxi driver who told me he was sponsoring his wife. She had been finishing college and um, was living in Kenya with her family and was pregnant. And she was wow. he was sponsoring her to come right when she finished college, but now she was banned from joining him. And of course, the child, he's a U.S. citizen. The child would be a U.S. citizen, but the child's mother wouldn't be able to come into the United States. That really is puts puts things in context for me because I feel like 
a lot of the headlines that I've seen are of you know, when we see families being separated in the United States is you know Latino families or families from Central and South America who are being separated at the border. But I, I guess I, I don't see as much news about how Asian Americans and, and Asian families are, are being affected by this. Do you have a sense of Asian Americans and how they are impacted versus other immigrant communities in the United States? Yeah, so the Latino community, certainly the Latino undocumented community is larger numbers, and we still see higher numbers of Latinos coming across the southern border. But almost every immigration issue affects Asian immigrants and African immigrants as well. So for example, the southern border, the changes to asylum policies that are targeted towards perhaps Central Americans crossing the southern Mm -hmm. border impact, in many cases, people seeking asylum from all over the world. And we see, for example, thousands of South Asians crossing the southern border every year seeking asylum. They too have been put in detention, sometimes moved around the country. Some of them have been engaged in hunger strikes while they're in detention. It's just smaller numbers, but certainly it's one of our goals to lift up Asian American and Asian immigrant voices and stories in the media. And this kind of separation that has resulted from these various travel and immigration restrictions, what does it take for families to be able to be reunited again? Is it the legal restrictions that have to be lifted, or is there anything else that citizens can do on a private level to reunify with their families? Right now, we have the most restrictions we've ever seen at immigration. As you mentioned regarding my webinar last week, Last week, the president put an immigration ban on all immigrant visas, which are green cards, being issued to people outside the country. So in some ways, there's not a lot that individuals can do directly, but we strongly encourage civic engagement in all different ways. And the lifting up stories, and the voices of impacted people like you're doing with this podcast is really, really important because we need to mobilize more people in the public to contact their members of Congress. Of course, we also encourage everyone to contact their member of Congress and senators about these issues and to push back because, of course, Congress can override anything that the president does. And the storytelling aspect is really important, whether it's talking to the media or just tweeting or sharing on Facebook or sharing with advocates or sharing with members of Congress. They like to hear stories, too. When members of Congress are more often motivated to fight for an issue when they have people who live in their district who come to them and tell them their personal story. Yeah, because as you said, something that I've heard on either side of the aisle is that, as you said, families are the cornerstone of American communities. And it seems to me that's really enshrined in our values. And a number that did strike me from your webinar last week was that it was mentioned that last year there were 358,000 green cards that were issued to people who would be affected in these categories under the executive order. That just astounded me. It says around a third of immigrants to the U.S. The president is blocking only those people who are coming to live in the United States as lawful permanent residents, as permanent immigrants who are on a path to citizenship. He's allowing temporary visitors to come in, which is a theme we've seen with the Muslim bans too. And it to us indicates that it is about changing the future demographics of America because they seem willing to allow people to study here or perhaps work here to benefit the U.S. economy, but not allow them to become bully 
American or live with their families in, in many cases, and which we think is antithetical to right. American values. So I'm wondering if you could give an overview and for those of us who are listening who may not be familiar with the Reuniting Our Families Act, this bill in Congress, could you introduce it for us and talk about its significance? Sure. So Representative Judy Chu of California has introduced this bill, the Reuniting Families Act, for a number of years. It really seeks to build upon our current family-based immigration system improve it and resolve some of the problems. A major problem with our current system is that many of the family reunification categories are backlogged. So there is a long wait time for someone to sponsor family members, say siblings or their adult children. And the wait time is longer for certain countries because there's a country cap of 7% per country. And so countries where there are a lot of immigrants coming, particularly China, India, the Philippines, Mexico, and Vietnam have the, the longest wait time. So the bill would clear those backlogs to make everything become current, and it would resolve some language in the immigration law around same-sex sponsorship making sure there's full equality to same-sex partners. It would provide some relief to some of the problems in the employment-based system, particularly where H-1B workers are backlogged to getting a green card, which has a particularly negative effect on their families because if their children don't get a green card before they turn 21, they age out and lose their status. Also, this administration wants to take work authorization away from the spouses of H-1B workers. So the bill would just codify work authorization for those spouses. And then there's also enforcement relief. Many people living in the United States who are undocumented cannot be sponsored by their family members due to barriers in the law. So the bill removes some of those barriers and creates waivers allowing family members to sponsor their loved ones who are undocumented in the United States. And similarly, to prevent many people from being deported. So right now, immigration judges, their hands are pretty tied. If someone is being deported for a long list of criminal offenses, it doesn't matter if they're minor, it doesn't matter if they're very old. The judge Mm -hmm. often has to deport them, and they can't look at factors like the impact of a deportation on U.S. citizen children. Or other family members, aunts, uncles, you know, sometimes people are taking care of an elderly aunt or a grandparent, and the judge can't take any of that into consideration, nor the fact that maybe the crime was committed 15 years ago and the person hasn't gotten in trouble in 15 years and has a job, all of that. So there's these broad family unity waivers that just really allows immigration judges to look at the whole person and the whole situation. Wow, it sounds like a very comprehensive and an important piece of legislation. You said the bill has been around for a few years now. So one, has there been an attempt to overhaul and reform the immigration system like this in, in recent history? And two, what are the barriers to this being the bill being passed and implemented? Well, Congress tried to legislate on the DREAM Act in 2018. So it hasn't been very long, but that was a very challenging effort with this president and this environment because the president really wanted to cut immigration in half and end family-based immigration to do anything for DACA recipients. So that was more of a defensive effort to try to save 
the DACA program. But the last time Congress, I think, in good faith, tried to really create a comprehensive solution was in 2013, where this bill was part of the base bill in the Senate, and that bill did pass. It was a bipartisan bill in the Senate. There was some compromises on family that we were not happy with, but it did clear the backlogs, and it would have legalized 11 million people. For that, I think it was 2007. It's a very challenging issue because the parties are fairly polarized. They've become increasingly polarized under this president and in this environment with really the far right wants to cut immigration, as I said, as the president's doing effectively through his administrative policies. And so many, many people don't want to cut immigration. And I will say, look, immigrant youth, DACA recipients have been largely unwilling to create harm to other communities in exchange for permanent status for themselves, much to their credit because over 80% of Americans support the DREAM Act. So it should just be passed by itself, but it's been held hostage by other political interests. So that's kind of where we are in Congress. It's rather depressing, but we're really building around the Reuniting Families Act for the longer term, for when hopefully we have a more reasonable environment to actually pass legislation. Wow. I think just speaking from my personal experience, I, I briefly mentioned that I've been involved with Outside this podcast, advocacy for family reunions for elderly Korean Americans and their families in North Korea. And Representative Judy Chu actually hosted a congressional forum last summer on that issue. So I'm glad she's a champion for family reunions all across the board. But something that I've noticed through my experience is that if family reunions are, and the union of family is such a core value, a universal value that I feel like is and should be bipartisan. But then issues like immigration policy or North Korea policy seem to be so divisive, and the two or more sides can never agree on something. I just wonder if you could, yeah, if you could talk about why you think immigration has become such a polarized issue when, as you said, the union of family is such a cornerstone of American values and American society. Well, Unfortunately, I think immigrants have been particularly scapegoated by this administration, uh, this president, and particular elements in America. I think whenever there's an issue by this administration, if the president is seeing low approval ratings or having a bad news cycle, he always pivots back to immigration and scapegoating immigrants in one manner or another. And unfortunately, I think that that is working for a minority, a significant minority and a a very vocal minority of people in the United States. And the counter to that really is that we need more people to get involved in pro-immigrants rights issues and speak up. I still think democracy works. I know that having worked in D.C. and Congress for congressional-related work for eight years, they do count the phone calls, the members of Congress, they count the phone calls, they count those emails, they pay attention to when their constituents are calling them and Mm -hmm. voicing their concerns and getting angry. That just seems to be the way forward. And I think we need to do more work to do outreach in other parts of the country. I think some people are doing that work of talking to Americans about immigration and 
countering misinformation campaigns. It's interesting the Asian American community has just to, to add an important role because where we see it's, it's the fastest growing racial group in the United States. And there's a lot of fast growing AAPI communities in wider areas of the country, in Ohio and Texas and the Midwest. And so I think they care about immigration and when they get involved, it can have an impact on those politicians in those areas. I hope so as well. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about coalition building and solidarity among different immigrant communities. Because one thing that I was looking through the work that you and your organization have done, and one thing that really struck me and inspired me was I saw that, I guess, already two years ago, after the the Muslim ban, you and Asian Americans Advancing Justice went out to rally. The, The fact that I'm sure there are numerous other instances where of course, you and your organization, but other AAPI organizations have have advocated and stood in solidarity for other immigrant communities and vice versa. And I'm I'm just wondering if you could talk us through the the, the impetus behind that. Yes, well, it's interesting because sometimes I don't know how to answer the question because the Middle East is sometimes considered Asian and some sometimes not, right? So. Is it allyship or is it part of Asian American communities? Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> I'll say this quarter of Asians are Muslim because we do have partners. We have our affiliate Asian Americans Advancing Justice, Asian Law Caucus in San Francisco serves Middle Eastern and Muslim communities in direct services. And they serve particularly the Iranian American community who's been seriously impacted by the Muslim ban. So I just want to make that point. But yeah, thank you for clarifying. <laughs> yeah, no, but for many, it is allyship too, right? And I, and for the Japanese American community in particular, they were very, very quick to see the Muslim ban for, for what it was and really reminiscent of Japanese internment. And yeah. so calling that out and the, the similarities, both in, in the Muslim ban context, as well as the family separation and family incarceration at the border, how yeah. that was reminiscent of Japanese internment and othering. So I think that's really where the allyship comes from, that this really is attack on all communities of color in terms of being rooted in, in white nationalism. I mean, it was a, a no-brainer to engage on the Muslim ban. And our, our challenge with working on all of the issues has been mostly one of capacity. There's so many issues. So I think in many cases, we we sign on to letters on issues that we don't necessarily work a lot on. And in turn, those organizations sign on to our letters, but to really engage at the level we'd like to on every issue that happens isn't possible because there's been such an onslaught of attacks. And from your work in, in collaborating and partnering and, and standing in solidarity, are there any takeaways or, or lessons that you've learned from maybe by, by comparing different, different experiences and cases? If you've seen any similarities or perhaps differences in how communities respond or, or even how, how best to strategize with advocacy or engaging the government. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's an excellent question. I think we look, I mostly look at who's having an impact, who's winning, what works. Sometimes it's hard to draw lessons because some things are circumstantial, right? We saw the impact of the protests at the airports when the Muslim ban came out just an opportunity crystallized where it was just so immediate and there was an easy action for people to take, which was to go to the airports and protest. And then the symbolism and the 
the images we saw from that were very impactful, but that just isn't as easy to replicate when you're talking about immigration raids or these policies we see that just make it harder to become a citizen or harder to get a green card. It's a little bit harder to mobilize people and get these kind of symbolic images. I mean, similarly, the reaction to the cruelty of separating families at the border was the action, the stories were just so heinous. So (laughs) we're still processing. We're whether we're three and a half years in, we're still processing and, and trying to learn these lessons. But there's been a lot of messaging research happening by our partners. And we're trying to synthesize it all. And we, we're also trying to have sort of more meta narrative messaging that really includes everybody. Yeah, I really, really appreciate that you're trying to do that. And that is something that I think we're trying to do with this podcast is help uh, hopefully build empathy among ourselves, first and foremost, but also listeners and, and different communities. Because it's really easy and maybe even natural to relate to somebody or care about, speak out on behalf of somebody who looks like you or is part of your community. But when it comes to people who don't or who who on the outside are different from you, I guess I've seen that people are more uh, reluctant to engage. So I I don't know if you have any strategies or, or best practices on getting people to care and not just care and, and read an article and, and listen, but actually take action and, and, and speak out. And as you said, call your member of Congress or, or write a letter. Yeah, I mean, I think it's challenging. It's a long haul. At this point, people are probably feeling a little burnt out. But, I, I, you know, <laughs> I'll tell you, I've, my first entree into immigrants' rights was actually after 9-11. With, there was this roundup of South Asians and Muslim immigrants and, you know, real um, trampling on people's rights. And then there was a special registration program. And people did not react back then. People, I mean, allies and Americans did not react back then to the way they did react after the Muslim ban and and to, to Trump and the activism we've seen. So in that way, I think I've seen over the years, actually, a growing support. And I think Young people are a lot more woke, as they would say, as they would say, you know, aware about uh, racial justice and active yeah. and all of that just gives me hope, mm. you know, and the numbers indicate the same, right, that it's older folks who tend to have more anti-immigrant views. <laughs> Maybe not the best answer. No, no, that, that's a great answer. And I hope that, you know, I, I feel like most people who listen to podcasts and especially this podcast are younger people as well. I mean, I guess just my personal hope and opinion is that not just young people who are already woke, but older people and people who are not so familiar with these issues firsthand might start to care about these issues. My last question is, you know, to, to, to bring this back uh, to, to you and your organization and, and the campaign. Is there anything that listeners can do to help and, and support and further further your cause, especially the Value Our Families campaign or the Reuniting Families Act? Yes. Well, certainly, as I mentioned, look up the Reuniting Families Act, Google it and find out if your member of Congress is a co-sponsor and contact them and ask them to co-sponsor. That's number one. But I, I sh- should acknowledge this is a very hard time and so many people are struggling and our government are focusing on a crisis. And so I think it's important to 
pause and recognize that our system should uphold the dignity of all people. And so many frontline workers are immigrants or children of immigrants. There's about 6 million immigrant workers on the front lines of this pandemic. And many may not even have access to healthcare or testing for coronavirus or treatment because immigrants can't get access to Medicaid or other means-tested benefits such as food stamps until they are lawful permanent residents for five years. So the undocumented population, DACA recipients, TPS, and then green card holders who got their green card within the last five years can't get Medicaid. And for undocumented, they can't get tax credits for the ACA exchanges. So that's something we're really asking Congress to fix right now in legislation, which they'll be passing another bill related to the pandemic. And folks can ask their members of Congress right now to make sure that all immigrants have access to testing and treatment. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for reminding us of, of these circumstances and that, you know, we're not having this conversation in, in a vacuum and of the role of that immigrants are playing in, to, to help combat this pandemic. Thank you so much again, Megan, for, for taking the time to, to, to speak with me today. Thanks for having me, Paul. It was fun. listening and if you're interested in hearing more stories of family separation please follow us on instagram at divided families podcast if you enjoyed this episode please rate us on apple podcasts and you can follow us on your preferred streaming platform thanks as always to flannel albert for the music and see you next time